0: Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This morning, your co-host Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pellicone, and this week we are going to be looking at the top five horror movies of the 1970s. Uh, Frank, before we get into this, um, this is a hard list for you, right? So the actual list is
1: like 25-ish movies long. Um, it was really difficult to pare down because there's movies that aren't on this list that maybe from a nostalgic point of view, or even from like a objective point of view are better movies than some movies on this list. But for the reasons that we'll discuss coming up, like these movies I feel are the most important and in some ways the most important to me of the seventies. Um, but yeah, incredibly difficult. Like we could probably do like five or six series on this. and It's not even cover everything from the seventies that I love. My favorite favorite decade of film, like for almost every genre of film, and definitely like horror, I think it's like the strongest
0: decade in general. What What do you think particularly about that decade in terms of horror movies, per se? Is what makes it strong, like overall? So I
1: think that the like the new wave and like experimental films of the '60s kind of gave way to the idea that you can do more on film, like you can show more and you can be more. You don't have to be quite as subtle. Um, so a lot of horror, like leading up into the nineteen sixties, is based more on the implication of the act rather than like the horror is built from the idea of something bad happening to somebody. And in the seventies, so like Psycho, Psycho, and, and like like the Hammer movies from the sixties, yeah, sure, and yeah. any of like you look at like the Universal movies. I mean, really, like any of Hitchcock stuff. Sure. It's always about more the psychological implication of someone being in peril or someone like being murdered rather than the actual, like, act of showing someone murdered. And in the 70s, like, kind of all bets were off. Um, I think mostly because there was more of an outlet with, um, you know, like, the cheap, like, low-budget cinemas. Um, companies like, uh, uh, what is it, Roger Corman's production company, New Age or whatever, were able to, like, churn out, like, large amounts of these horror films, Um and there was an audience for it. Like, people wanted to see them. Um, you know, some of some of my favorite movies, like, in the 70s are horror films. And I think it's because directors weren't, like, shackled by the idea that they were making a movie for a studio. They could just make what they wanted to make. And as a result, like, you get a lot more experimentation. Um, I think there's a lot more daring in the filmmaking Um and I think that because they were free to do whatever they want. I mean, not to say there's not bad, like, horror movies from the 70s. But the really good ones, like, show a, a pretty, pretty deep, like, artistic commitment on the, the people's part. While still being, like, somewhat exploitive. But it's not often... The best horror movies from the 70s aren't, like, exploitive just to be exploitive. Like, they're not just gratuitous. Even though there's a lot of, like, gratuitous scenes in them. Um, they actually are trying to tell, like, a social message. Yeah. Also might be a reaction to maybe, like, the disco era in some ways. Like, the, the idea of, like, everything's fun and everything's fine and, like, you can cure what ails you by, like, doing drugs and dancing the night away and, like, maybe this is a, like, almost a counterculture reaction to that. Yeah.
0: That's, like, just, I don't know, like, out of my ass, but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I think we'll see that with at least one or two of these movies, like, on here. Um... How kind of to phrase this? i mean certainly you talk about like not being gratuitous just for gratuity's sake um that's certainly not what most people think about these a lot of these movies though. true
1: and definitely like in some of the movies we're going to talk about and maybe mm-hmm. all all five of them there is a level of like gratuitous violence to them mm-hmm. but in most of them the violence is done in a way that's like beautiful it gets Cinematically valid and I think that even at the time when these movies were kind of like decried as just being Like pointless exercises of violence. I think that over time, you know with like the benefit of like distance um, You can kind of see like a lot of the artistic merit to the stuff in them and they're really like all five of them. I think Either in their influence or you know, even today I think have a lot of weight
0: and a lot of importance Okay. All right. Awesome. So let's go ahead and get started then. Um, Number five on your list is Bay of Blood, uh, also known in the U.S. um, by Carnage, Twitch of the Death Nerve. Uh, It was made in 1971 by Mario Bava. It has a 80% on Rotten Tomatoes with, I can't remember how many critics, it's a handful. And then um, then 64% from audiences. Um, Do you want to go ahead and just explain a little bit about the film and why you like it so much? So old woman gets murdered
1: in her house by her husband. Um, Almost immediately, the husband is then murdered by an unknown assailant. His body's dumped in a bay. And then through a series of ridiculous plot twists and almost like incoherent narrative, there's a series of, I guess, a dozen more murders after that. Of people that are basically trying to claim this woman who was rich she was a countess or whatever they're trying to claim her land which includes this bay for themselves Um, so basically there's a couple of different interested parties who are trying to murder each other in order to own the land Um, there's an illegitimate son there's a daughter there's this real estate development couple there's these four teenagers that are just unfortunate to be there at the time and end up getting murdered. Um, Really, again, like a completely convoluted plot and ridiculous in the sense of like these people like just murdering each other almost like willy-nilly because, you know, they want to like own this property. Um, A real departure for Baba in a lot of ways, who had only made one movie before this, uh, Blood and Black Lace that really had any kind of like overt violence in it. I mean, Baba's more up to this point, like a restra- and even after this point, honestly, like very restrained, um, very classic director. Um, but in this movie focuses more on almost like the, like fetishizes the violence in a lot of ways and like depicts it in very graphic and almost loving detail. Um, A lot of deaths in this movie that would later in the 70s, like, inspire, I think, the glut of serial killer or slasher movies, Um, in particular Friday the 13th Part 2, which I think draws a huge amount of influence, and maybe even the entire Friday the 13th franchise with the idea of, like, the camp on the water and, you know, the unknown killer, basically, or like, the faceless killer, even though the killer's unmasked pretty early in Bay of Blood.
0: Um, First-person point of view.
1: yeah. Which also inspired some other things. Sure, I mean there's other movies. So before this, you have um, Peeping Tom, um, which also uses a first person point of view and is a lot more like artistic, like Michael Michael Pressburger, I guess. Um, but Bay of Blood is really like graphic and sets like a standard that's then followed throughout the 70s and 80s by innumerable films in how you film. I mean, it's it's teenagers in peril. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the fact that people get their just desserts, you know, by being murdered. Um, graphically showing, like, in detail people being murdered. People being murdered in what would be considered, like, inventive ways. You know, it's not just a gun or a knife. You know, there's a, like, a fishing hook. There's a spear. People are, like, strangled in almost like a, like a loving manner. Like, slowly strangling someone to death. I mean, there's a lot of real... I don't know, groundbreaking things in this movie. So it's hard for me to say why, like you ask why I love this movie. And I wouldn't say that I love Bay of Blood. I mean, I I think Mar- Mario Bob is one of my favorite horror directors of all time, because I think that he's able to bridge like multiple facets of the horror genre that he can do supernatural. He can do like psychological, he can do, you know, demonic. I mean, there's a lot of things that Baba does really well. And this isn't necessarily his strongest movie, but definitely the movie that I think this and kill baby kill that like influenced the most films that came after it. Um, so really like I, I mean, I don't know if you can use the word seminal, but it's definitely like a incredibly important work. And it's like, there's an old, um, an old adage that like only a hundred people ever bought the velvet undergrounds albums, but every single one of those people went on to form a band Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same thing with Bay of Blood. You know, I don't know that it was hugely successful, like from a box office perspective. But at the same time, I think that the people that did see it then went on to like imitate it almost to like a like a precious like level. And especially again, like I I'll bring it up a couple of times, probably when we talk about this is Friday the Thirteenth Part Two that almost like note for note like steals deaths from this movie. Mm-hmm. And the fact that like this movie launched. You know, because Friday the 13th Part 1 is a really good movie, but 2 is really the one that starts that series sure. with having, like, Jason as the antagonist. Right. Um, and the fact that it was so influential that it was basically, like, ripped off, you know, verbatim to start that genre. I mean, it's it's, it's a pretty important movie. What are some of your favorite scenes in it? Um, I definitely like the whole sequence where the four kids break into the woman's house after she's died. Mm. Um... I like the fact that it's, you know, it's kind of set at like dusk and the way that it's filmed is very, like, the encroachment of shadows and stuff. Um, There's, it's, it's odd because there's inherently nothing, like, in Friday the 13th they go out of their way, and a lot of slasher films, to make the kids that are getting murdered unsympathetic. Like, you're meant to not, you're almost meant to cheer for their death because they've been made to be so... I don't know, like disgusting in a lot of ways, but these kids are just kids and then they still get murdered because it's just, it's inconvenient that mostly cause the one girl goes skinny dipping and she finds the body of the husband right, from like the second murder in the movie. Um, so she has to get murdered and then the other kids who are in the house have to get murdered. Um, but it's a really, I, I imagine at the time it was probably a really unexpected and probably upsetting Series of events to see these like innocents get murdered like that. Um, because typically when an innocent gets murdered, it's like the pivotal part of the movie, and this is 20 minutes into the film, I think maybe not even that much where this happens. Um, there's a lot of like the, the death of the old woman, I think, is really powerful in the beginning. Um, just with the way that he strangles her and like the way that the lighting in the I don't know, it's like a study or a library or whatever yeah. where she is. No, I agree with that. Um, you. I mean, there's also some scenes that are like absolutely ridiculous in this movie. Um, And I think that Baba, I've never read any interviews with him about this movie, and honestly, I've never read any criticism of it. I just know, based on like my own knowledge, like what its import is in terms of like its influences. But my guess is that he's trying to make some kind of comment on like the dangers of unbridled greed since everybody is. I mean, aside from those four kids, which really is kind of... Again, like, another reason why, like, that small section of the movie is so memorable to me. me, Because there's nothing that ties them... Everyone else in the movie that dies has some tie to trying to, like, gain this fortune. And these kids are just kids, like, trying to scare themselves, basically, by going into the house of the murdered woman. Right. You know, as an auspice of, like, having sex with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but, you know, even the end... And I don't know if anyone would ever go and watch this movie. But right now it's only available to watch on YouTube. And it was honestly not that great of a transfer. Sure. Um, but the end of the movie, the two, the two husband and wife that are like the real estate developers that have basically like driven the violence throughout the entire movie by their own greed um, finally succeed and have everything that they want and then are murdered by their children who have found their shotgun and basically killed them both because they think that they're playing a game um it's an incredibly ridiculous ending yes uh and completely like atonal to the rest of the movie in terms of like how it's presented but again like i think that baba maybe almost like
0: his naivete was just trying to like make a comment on society or yeah i i I my only thought about that was that it feels like it's a person who was trying to make this kind of thumb his nose at, you know, greed that was making this kind of satire, like the social statement, who didn't trust, not that it's extremely subtle, but the subtlety of that satire. And then at the end has to make it a joke in order to get the audience to kind of get the point. Yeah. And it's somebody who, to me, didn't trust his own story, or maybe didn't trust the audience, and that atonal shift at the last three or four minutes, or whatever it is, um, that happens—maybe last two minutes—I don't know. But it's it's, yeah, maybe not even two minutes. Right. It's like I thought it was really jarring, to the point where it's like I didn't laugh with the movie. Yeah, you laugh at the movie. Yeah, I laugh. So at it. we we talked
1: about M Night Shyamalan last week. You mm-hmm. know, my favorite movie is um, Unbreakable. And the end of this movie is very similar to how I feel about the very end of Unbreakable, where you have the title cards that come up and basically, like, here's all this exposition of what happened after mm-hmm. it faded to black. And I kind of feel it's the same way, where it's almost like an unnecessary coda to a movie that had made its point, you know? Mm-hmm. And I don't know how you wrap it up at that point, because I don't think those people can live. But maybe those people living is honestly, like, the ultimate condemnation. That sometimes the greedy, just get away with it. Like you can be the worst person and still come out on top. Um, and maybe that was his thing. It's maybe he felt that that was almost too bold a statement to make. Cause remember this is 1971. Like, so he maybe felt he needed to like kill them somehow. Um, and maybe it's relevant that it's their children that are doing it. Um, I mean, again, look, the narrative of this movie is ridiculous. And it's one of the most, like... For a guy that was really good at directing, like, Giallo films and making tight murder mysteries... It's really almost against type that, like, this movie many times doesn't even, like, have a semblance of sense to it. It's just kind of like things are happening and people are killing each other. And continuously killing each other and it just is just happening, I guess. Um, but again, like, so I think that's another important, like, even though it doesn't necessarily work as like a narrative film, I think it's an important thing because that's the template that so many horror movies follow after that. Like you watch something like, um, like the burning, which is a really good horror movie from, I think like the early eighties, Jason Alexander in it. Um, There's a plot, like, there's a reason this guy's killing people, but it's just him killing people, you know, and in Friday the 13th, maybe in the second Friday the 13th, there's a reason why Jason's killing campers, but after that, like, there's no reason for it, like, there's no true narrative structure except to get you from one death to another, and this being, like, one of the first movies where that really is, like, what's happening in this movie is... There's a very weak narrative that's moving you from one
0: set-piece death to the next set-piece death. Let's talk about set-piece deaths um, real quick. So, like, how do you feel like they, like, hold up, like, over time? I mean, they're corny. You know, yeah. they're hokey in the sense that
1: there's definitely, like... It's funny that I I find set-piece deaths now to be almost, like, passe, and I don't enjoy them. So, like, I have no affection for the Saw series, because I think it's... Or, like, the Hostel series, because I feel like it's nothing but those directors moving you from one Rube Goldberg death to the next one. You know what I mean? Like, there's no rhyme... There's this very loose plot that's supposed to be, like, make you feel like it's profound, even though it's not. But... It's quaint, you know. I mean, there's like a certain charm to the fact that this is... You're seeing like the nascent, I don't know, like incarnation of this idea. And this guy, who is a pretty successful director up to that point, and really very restrained, like just plays completely against type and makes this movie where, you know, I mean, if if Bay of Blood came out today and was unchanged in its form... It would be, like, eminently forgettable. And none of those things... You know, maybe the spear through the two kids having sex. Maybe the fishing hook to the face. Um, but even then, it's still, like, really passe at this point. But it's just interesting to see... It's almost
0: groundbreaking when you watch it. So... Yeah, yeah see, I, I actually... I don't like this movie, at all, like, really at all. Like, I can respect its place in, kind of, history... Um, For what it does, but I don't like it at all. But I actually thought the deaths, to some degree, held up a little bit for what they were. Um, I I find like the the way that they he did them in terms of the um, like the people not dying immediately and like the twitching that goes on and those kind of things. Like I, that's the kind of thing that horrifies me. Like when I see those things, it's like yeah, it's goofy. Like you know, taking a hatchet to the face or something like that. But the idea that you survive. Five or six seconds, like, you know, and and you see that, like, you know, there has to be some kind of consciousness there, like, for that to be happening sure. before the death, you know, occurs. Like, those are the kind of things, like, in terms of those kind of scenes that I find horrifying. And I thought he pulled that off pretty well through a lot of it. Some of it's goofy. Like, I think, like, you know, it's it's very... One of the best shot, shot scenes, I think, in is the very beginning with the Countess. Mm-hmm. Um... And it reminds me, actually, of a movie that we're going to talk about a little later, just a little bit, like, in terms of, like, the coloring and stuff in the scene. Um, But I thought it was one of the hokiest, like, in terms of the deaths to some degree, um, just in, like, the way it was uh, handled, like, in terms of the death itself. Like, especially, like, some of the makeup and stuff that was done with it. Like, it was just, there's some of those elements that are hokey. But I actually thought the deaths themselves were pretty... um, pretty realistically done and I actually kind of reacted to those. I don't think physically or emotionally, but like at least like in an artistic way, I was like, Oh, okay. Like, you know, I can still like, you know, kind of appreciate some of that. I thought it was everything surrounding those scenes that like, I just had no interest in. Yeah. I
1: mean, it's terrible. And again, like, like I agree that the way that he films it because he is a great filmmaker in his own right. So he's not, Maybe he's a little uncomfortable with the idea that the death is nothing but a set piece, right? Like, there has to be some weight to it, maybe, which is why he shows it like that. Yeah. Um. Again, like, this is not a time period where you're fetishizing death on film. Like, it's it's pre... Like, the early 70s still had some composure in the way that it would show things like that. Um, you actually were more likely to see, like, sex on film than you would be to see, like, real, like, physical death at this point. And, I mean, like, whatever, however it holds up as a film, like, it really, like, to your point, like, you know, he really does, like, show you, like, the death. Yeah. And it's 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 pretty jarring. And I I can't remember when I first saw this movie. I was definitely older when I saw it. Um Rhino film or shock factory or something put out a box set of Baba movies. And that was the first time I'd seen it. So this is probably like 2003, maybe 2004, somewhere thereabouts. Um, but I was just blown away. Like seeing like all these scenes play out and like recognizing like, Oh, well that's in Friday the Thirteenth part three, or that happens in, I don't know, my bloody Valentine. You know what I mean? Like just mm-hmm. seeing those things sure. and like recognizing the influence. I think it was really, um,
0: really profound. Yeah, I, um, it's, it's really not worth me reading through, um, I had a review from David Nasser from Real Film mm-hmm. Reviews, uh, and we've already talked about a number of his points, and he's, he's extremely critical of it, but he, it's largely the stuff we've already talked about, um, the only thing that didn't get brought up is, I, I really think that it's, um, that the direction is, um, for somebody who's as respected as Bob is to some degree, I think I just don't think the direction is very good, like, in this movie, like, whatsoever, outside of those scenes, like, it's just, I, th- I think it's really dull, and he makes the claim that it's, like, hard to hold the viewer's interest for more than a few minutes at a time, and I really did feel that way, like, when I was watching it. Yeah. Because uh, I've never seen this before until this time, like, and yeah, I watched, like, the YouTube version of it, which was pretty bad, probably VHS copy or something like that. I wish I
1: could have found my DVD version, because I know I still have it, but... Yeah. Like, I watched the YouTube version as well, like, leading up to this. Mm -hmm. Because it's been, you know, probably a decade since I've watched this movie. Um, And I don't feel like... I I feel like there's things that were edited out of... I I don't know. It it didn't feel the same. So maybe that's just, like, rose-colored glasses or whatever, like, or nostalgia. Um, From, like, a really great experience I had watching this movie for the first time. Um, But... I don't don't think the YouTube version does it justice. It's also, like, the coloration's kind of wrong on it, and it's, um, it's got some weird compression things going on when Mm -hmm. you watch it, so it's almost like somebody filming a screen, even Mm -hmm. though I know that's not, like, how it was done. Right. Um, if you can find that Baba Box set, like, if you have any interest in, like, I guess, like, the history of horror and the slasher genre in particular, like, it's worth, like, tracking down that DVD copy, even though Mm -hmm. I, I think it's out of print at this point.
0: Just a quick note, real quick. Um, just curiosity. Like, there's a full frontal scene in this with the girl that's swimming. Was yeah. that okay, do you know? Like, in Italy at that time, in, like, 1971?
1: Oh, yeah. Anything? Yeah? Like, in Europe, they were full frontal for, like, like oh, forever. Okay, yeah. Okay. Again, yeah. like, nudity and sex wasn't a big deal. I mean, in the... Sure. six, In the... From the 60s, like, through the 70s and into the 80s, there's a huge cottage industry of nothing oh, but, yeah, like, we've, uh, soft softcore erotica that comes yeah. out of... Okay. What, I mean, Jess Franco's making movies shortly after this, and Jess Franco's whole, like, I don't know, cinematic catalog is nothing but,
0: like, vampires, like, having lesbian sex with each other, so. Yeah. Okay. Um, Yeah, I was just, I was kind of taken aback by a little bit, like, the full frontal aspect of it. Like... It's it's
1: surprising when it happens. I mean,
0: especially because it's so early in the 70s, but again... You know, it's it's a European... I mean, we film. were... Right. We, I mean, it's just shocking because we were so kind of prudish with any of sure. that kind of stuff. And through. even so are. Right. Sure. Um. Okay. Any final
1: thoughts on this? No, I mean, again, like, th- this was the most difficult inclusion on this list because of all the movies that I, like, when we first talked about this that I brainstormed, I probably enjoy every other movie more than this movie, but I don't think that... I think there's only a couple other movies that are more important than this movie. And I think it's, I think it's important to talk about it. And I kind of, for whoever listens to this, I kind of would just like to let people know that it exists. And maybe if you're really interested in horror that you'll go and like watch it and just see like what the genesis of all
0: these things that we grew up like watching was. All right. So let's move on to number four, which is. Uh, 1974's Frightmare, directed by Peter Walker, starring Sheila Keith and Rupert Davies. Uh, it's actually not rated from critics. There's no critical scores mm-hmm. up on Rotten Tomatoes. It has a 55% from the audience on Rotten Tomatoes. Do you want to go ahead and describe the plot of this movie and why you like it?
1: So, it basically revolves around two sisters, one of whom is a college student. Um, who takes care of her younger sister, who's kind of a juvenile delinquent. Um, The college student also secretly takes care of her parents, who it turns out have been in a mental institution for 15 years because the mother was a cannibal, and the father helped cover it up. Um, I mean, that's pretty much the entire plot. You know, it's the delinquent daughter has these violent impulses. Um, She's the... The older daughter's adopted, basically, by the motherly. She's the daughter of the father, but not of the mother. But the younger daughter is the daughter of both of them. And it's kind of like this psychosis has been passed down to this younger girl. Um, I mean, it's really like a, a really small movie in terms of what happens in it. Like, there's not really much. It's just... The, the father and mother were released from this mental institution. The mother's obviously not cured. She's kind of tricked, like, psychologists into thinking that she was cured. She's still murdering and eating people. Um, and her younger the younger daughter eventually turns, like, to that as well. Um, really, I I love Pete Walker. Pete Walker's one of my favorite horror directors of the 70s. Um, very very british in the way that it's done this is a very like i mean they even like kind of reference blow up in it but it's a very british film you know the way like the sensibilities um the buttoned up nature of the people that are kind of on the outside looking in um but really effective but sheila keith is just insane and has this, like, miraculous, like, almost, I don't know, like, superhuman ability to switch from being, like, this doddering, friendly old woman to being, a (laughs) like, an absolutely monstrous psychopath, including, like, changing her voice and her facial mannerisms, mannerisms. Um, pretty, pretty short movie, I think. Um, again, like, not, like, huge on plot, but definitely builds tension in the fact that, like, you come to really kind of like the older sister. Like, you kind of root for the older sister because she's trying to keep everything together and maybe teach her younger sister that being a delinquent isn't the right way to go and still, like, have a decent life. And she has this loyalty to her father and she's trying to take care of them and ends up, like, ultimately getting murdered and presumably eaten because of it. Um, but really well filmed. Uh, it's got... There's a certain certain cinematic style of like British horror movies from this time period. That's very blue and gray at times. Um, and this juxtaposes like those kind of scenes, which are more like outdoor night scenes with like these dark, like wood paneled interiors that feel like really claustrophobic. Like when you're in, so the mother and father live in this farmhouse, um, where they've kind of been sequestered after they got released, um, because the mother is still like, obviously like crazy and cannibalistic. And just those scenes inside that house are so, like, claustrophobic, and there's, like, a real sense of, like, imminent dread and, like, danger to him. Mm-hmm. Um, the mother uses the auspices of being, like, a fortune teller, like, she reads tarot cards to get lonely people to come and sit with her so she can basically murder them and eat him. Right. Um I had not... There's actually, like... So I read Mad Magazine when I was a kid. And Mad in Hall- every Halloween used to do, um, I can't remember what they called them, but they would take like stills from films and they would put like word balloons on them, like joke word balloons. And this was a movie that had this a scene with Sheila Keith like holding a drill that they had like a joke thing on. And I had no idea what the movie was until again, like, I think it was like Rhino or Shock Factory or something released a Pete Walker collection and just a random purchase in Best Buy one day. And, like, really really kind of blown away by it the first time I saw it. Uh, I've seen it maybe, like, four or five times. Um, I still, like, really enjoy it every time I see it. Um, I think it has a really good balance of, like, being almost like a family drama with being just an outright horror film. And it doesn't shy away from the idea that, like, this young girl, you know, this 15-year-old girl is almost, like, irredeemable at that point because of her genetics. Which I think is a pretty interesting idea for like a horror film from like mm-hmm. you know early to mid 70s right um the blood and gore is definitely 70s blood and gore so it looks like basically like tempera paint like spouting out from people um but still pretty effective like the death scenes mm-hmm. um there's a scene where a bartender refuses to serve the young girl like early in the film and she accuses a bartender of basically calling her a tart So her delinquent biker boyfriend like beats him up and then she murders him. And then there's a scene later where you can see that she's basically like eating his eyes and it's really kind of like it catches you off guard. Like when they show like the corpse, like Mm -hmm. just the graphic nature of like them showing like the dismemberment of this body. So I don't know. Um, I love Sheila Keith in this movie. I think that she's fantastic. Um, I like Rupert Davies a lot. Like he does a really good job playing a character that you feel like you maybe should feel sympathy for, but then you realize that he's kind of just enabling her because, like, he loves her so much that he's just going to let her, like, murder whoever because it's just what she does. Um, I don't know. It's a really tight movie, I think. There's not a lot of, like, meandering in it. It kind of gets to the point and just kills a decent number of people and then ends on a pretty dour note, which is also um, not really a commonplace thing
0: where, like, Evil really does triumph over good, like, in totality in this movie. Yeah, I thought the pacing of this was pretty good for somebody mm-hmm. who's concerned about those kind of things a lot of times and and, and running time. Um, what was it, 88 minutes or something like that? Yeah, it's pretty short. Be? It's a pretty short film, but it gets right to the point. It gets in it gets out. Um, it tells you the story. It doesn't miss any beats necessarily. Without
1: sacrificing, like... Yeah. An attempt at characterization. Sure, oh no, more. no. Like it those are fully fleshed out characters. <laughs> so. Yeah, it definitely builds, like, the older daughter, her boyfriend, the younger daughter, her boyfriend, and the parents. Um, and there's some ancillary characters, too, but, like, all of those characters have,
0: like, they feel like people when yeah. you're watching it. Yeah, no, like, um, the, the, the main sister, the main female character in Jackie, is um, yeah. pretty, um... A pretty full fledged character. I think so is Edmund, the her the psychologist, you know, who, <laughs> is, um, you know, trying to like help her out in order to get laid. But um, yeah, I I like Sheila Keith at times in this, and then there's times where I think it's like her craziness, like when she's really wild, is like, I, I think it goes a little too far sometimes. It might be a little over the top. Uh, I mean, it's very um. It feels very 1950s, 60s, like, horror to me. Like, the -the over-the-top. And I think that's almost on purpose, though. Maybe. Really. Um, That's the only times where I, like, saw her performance. But, like, most of the time, I love it. And then there's, you know, it's... She really is, like... It's almost like she's playing, like, the witch in Hansel and Gretel or something like that. Yeah, that's a really... That's a really apt comparison. Like, when she's sitting there
1: with the... It's the second woman that comes in to get her her fortune read. Mm Mm-hmm and the woman says something and she immediately turns from being like friendly and offering like tea and crumpets to just like vicious yeah and like her entire face like falls and Mm -hmm. her eyes narrow and there's like menace and honestly like you're watching this woman who's this you know 60 some year old woman not particularly like imposing or anything but just like the force of that character is so direct and menacing it's really, really effective. And it really makes you uncomfortable, I think, watching those scenes.
0: Yeah. I, I think it's just, like, the whole, like, mon- when she's maniacal, that it's just kind of it's like, okay, like, you know, let's get through this scene. But otherwise, I think she's really strong. And I love, um, Rupert Davies as, um, her husband. Yeah. Um, uh, he's, um, yeah, he's fantastic. But, um, so, um... I was looking at one of these reviews, Synapse, who does, um, horror reviews and, like, horror history and stuff like that, um, they write pretty good articles, I don't know if you've ever seen them before, Mm -hmm. but, um, they're probably actually worth checking out as a website sometimes. But, uh, it it, it actually goes, and I don't want to get into this comparison too much, but it talks a lot about how Frightmare, um, released within a year in the United States anyway, of Texas Chainsaw, Mm -hmm. and how, um... You know, kind of what you were saying. It kind of echoes like what you were saying a little bit. In that uh, Walker's says that Walker's film still feels rooted in the British cinema, old despite its modern um, genre trappings. At least for 1974, there's a thundering gothic air to the movie, right down to the uh, moody, fog-shrouded cinematography um, and crashing score. Um, And but the comparison overall is that like Hooper and Texas Chainsaw. Um, bucks some trends where sure. this movie kind of goes deeper into, like, the, the cinema of Britain um, and kind of, like, recalls, like, horror, our Hammer films and stuff like yeah. that a little bit. And, uh, like, it's, they, they see that as being the difference between being a horror classic and a movie like this of being um, widely forgotten outside occult cult circles. So... <clears throat> I mean, Texas Chainsaw is in a class by itself. Sure, yeah.
1: This movie is more a condemnation of the establishment, right? Because it's the establishment that fails the Yates, the mother and father, by letting them leave because it thinks that it's cured them. Because it's so, like the establishment is so egotistical that it feels like it can fix anything. And so it allows these murderers back into society because it can't, it can't admit that it can't fix the problem. Right. And Texas Chainsaw is about yeah. so many other things sure, right,
0: sure, than yeah. that, right? Right. I mean, I, I guess forgettable. I mean, I think forgettable just because... Not forgettable. It says widely forgotten. Like, I, I they actually like the movie a lot. Um, it's just that it's been forgotten, they yeah. said, because of that reason, is that it kind of goes into the past as as opposed to, like, kind of, you know, uh, looking forward in terms of what horror could be.
1: Yeah, again, like, that's... I don't know if problem is the right word, but that's mm-hmm. something that you see in, like, British cinema maybe forever. Like, I don't know if British cinema mm-hmm. British cinema ever gets away from that idea that, like, they have these tried-and-true standards that they make movies against. And even, like, something like Frightmare, which sort of moves a little outside of those standards, mm-hmm. it still, like, has that same button-down, stiff upper lip, yeah. You know, philosophy
0: that sure. most British movies have. So, going into the social commentary just a little bit, um, I mean, I, I think it does two interesting things. I think it's certainly making a, a statement about, like, the mental health system and the criminal justice system in the country. Um, but it also should, it's interesting because it's like they're obviously condemning that they don't know what they're doing. But, um, Graham, the psychologist in it, is not wrong, like you know, he's he's actually diagnosing things correctly for what little time he has to spend, like a little bit, right? It's like he's not completely wrong in the movie. Like, so it, he's an interesting character because
1: he almost his need to be right about the younger daughter mm. is somehow like counterbalanced with his need to have sex right. with Jackie. Yeah, but it's like. He puts him because he's so confident in the rightness of his diagnosis mm-hmm. that he's willing to jeopardize the sex part because he thinks that's just going to happen anyway mm-hmm. with needing to be right about the younger daughter. And honestly, mm-hmm. like, even though his analysis is probably correct, like, he's completely wrong because he can't fix the younger daughter.
0: Like, he's right. Well, it's like, well, yes, maybe that's probably right. He can't fix her, but um, he was getting him to the right questions. Like, he diagnosed certainly, he was diagnosing Jackie right. Yeah. And in the sense that her keeping that stuff, information about her parents away from Debbie was in some ways what was causing the manifestation of these things. And if had maybe something about that been more honest early on, then maybe she might have not went down this route potentially. Um, Because people could have seen it maybe. Like, I mean, so it's like, I think he's... He's getting there with his, like, kind of diagnosis, it seems to me. So, it's like, it's not a full-fledged, I think, dismissal of psychology, necessarily, is what I'm saying. You don't? No, I don't know. I don't know if I do. Like, I
1: I think that it's 100%, like, how to say this? It is
0: definitely pro-nature versus nurture. Yeah, like it's, it's well. Well, that's what I'm and That's the other point that I think it does is it's certainly saying. I think at least, no, it's definitely saying that madness is genetic. Yeah, you know, and and even
1: the other direction with Jackie and um, Rupert Davies' character is that he, to a fault, will protect the woman that he loves, mm-hmm. even to allowing his, you know, his his biological daughter to get murdered at her hands. Mm-hmm because he loves the he loves her and he can't right. bear the idea of seeing her right. she to a fault even though it frustrates her defends her biological sister mm-hmm. and ends up like leading to her death because she's unwilling to just like give her up to the authorities and let her go yeah so maybe, ulti- maybe like ultimately doesn't. she's definitely the daughter of her father and um, the younger sister is definitely the daughter of her mother yeah and that's the thing, is that in the end, the love of the father for the mother over outweighs everything else,
0: and that's what leads to uh, Jackie's yeah. death. You might, you might be right. I mean, like, the more I think about it, it's like horror movies that come after this. It's certainly, psychology's never really forefront in anybody's mind. It's like, you know, the psychologist is always wrong. Like, a lot of times, it's, it, they're just pure evil, you know? I mean, like, the whatever they are, like the killer or whatever, is just pure evil rather than being a complex psychological being. So, I mean, I guess in some ways this actually kind of starts setting tones for some of that. Um, I mean, Pete Pete Walker,
1: like, deals with psychosis in all of his movies. Yeah. Um, There's House of Whipcord that's a little more, like, gratuitous than this. But then there's the comeback, which is a lot more subtle. um, Almost like a precursor to maybe, like, Misery. Mm. Um, But definitely, I think Walker... Will always side with the fact that sometimes a crazy person is just a crazy person, and no matter how much you try to be empathetic or kind, that I mean, not to you know quote our president, but sometimes the snake is just a snake, right? Like it's just sometimes it's gonna bite you, and I think that's Pete
0: Walker's mindset in terms of like how he views psychosis, right. Yeah, I, I find it extremely fascinating. I, I really like that. This is the second time I've seen it. I think I saw it like 13 years ago um, or so. Like you, I think I borrowed it from you. and um, I, I really enjoyed it even better, I think, this time. Um, uh, I thought it was a pretty solid movie and still kind of holds up despite all those kind of things like we talked about. Yeah, it's, it's definitely the... like a hidden gem, I think, of yeah. the horror genre. Yeah, yeah. Um, any final thoughts on No,
1: I mean, again, like, it's not a movie that really gets brought up much. Um, again, it's not something I saw until later in my life, uh, which both for this and Bay of Blood um, is odd because like I watched so many horror movies when I was younger. But I don't even know if I ever saw this available for rent, yeah. or if I did, like I it never like stuck out to me. It has no critical
0: ratings on. Yeah, but, tomatoes, um,
1: so I for for a movie that a lot of people haven't seen, like when you watch it for the first time, I think it's really effective, and I think that. It holds up really well, even, you know, 30, almost 35 years, like, after its release, so. Or 40, right? Yeah. 45 years. Jesus. Yeah, 14. Um Yeah. Yeah. The 70s were a long time ago. It was, yeah.
0: Yep.
1: Um, but anyway, yeah, like, definitely worth watching, and if you're a fan of the horror genre, like, I think it's worth, like, you know, an hour and a half of your life.
0: Do you still think that you're, like, 30-something? I guess I forgot for a minute. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. That's a little depressing. <laughs> Um, okay, let's move on to number three. Number three is a movie, uh, also from 1974, directed by Alan Ormsby and Jeff Gillen, uh, called "Deranged," starring Roberts Blossom. Uh, this not also ha- did not have many critical reviews to it, like three or four, maybe, um, maybe five, I guess it was probably five, but 40 um, percent um, from critics, really? from Rotten Tomatoes, and then 58 percent from audiences. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> So, do you want to go ahead and explain what this movie um, is about and what kind of inspired it? So, it's sort of presented as like
1: a like a news docudrama, including narration via visible like newscaster narrative. Um, it's based on the Ed Gein story, like the true life, you know, killer slash necrophile um, who in this is portrayed um, as Ezra Cobb by Robert's Blossom. Um, a guy who's got a really terrible, like, edible complex, but also some tremendous, like, religious guilt, Mm -hmm. um, who ends up digging up corpses of, like, old women, um, and creating, I guess, like, dolls or mannequins and clothing and soup bowls and furniture out of them, and then turns to murder to find, like, fresh victims because he has no ability to, like, connect with other people. Um, again not like an overly complex plot you know it just kind of follows him in his like sort of descent from moderately crazy to super crazy um, and the murders that he commits uh, whereas like Texas Chainsaw is sort of purported to be the story of Ed Gein but isn't like really at all like this honestly more kind of follows like Ed Gein's story um, in terms of the mother aspect uh, the number of murders even though I think Ed Gein only killed two people Um, the, like what he did with the bodies and whatnot, um, sort of the fact that he was kind of a borderline autistic, like shut in that did like small menial labor for people around the town and was generally considered to be like a stupid, if not decent guy that people trusted. Um, the thing that makes this movie, I think really effective and honestly, like one of my favorite horror movies of all time. Number one is Robert's Blossom is, like, just amazing in his portrayal of psychotic without any malice to his psychosis. Like, he truly doesn't feel like he's doing anything wrong because he's really just, like, almost, like, he feels like he's almost, like, saving these Mm -hmm. bodies from, like, the ravages of the grave. And then he's saving these, like, women from whatever like the world at large by like preserving them and keeping them and he feels like he's bringing them well he's saving them from sin yeah and like protecting them and that comes from the whole idea that his mother (laughs) the the wages of sin are gonorrhea syphilis and death yes is one of my favorite lines in like all the movies ever (laughs) um really like i mean for a narrative that kind of like swings like all over the place in a lot of ways. Like, there's a lot of really, like, disparate scenes. Like, it's pretty tight. Yeah. Like, just following, again, like, his descent into madness. Mm -hmm. Um, There's some genuinely funny moments in the movie with, like, the way that he interacts with real people. Like, Mm -hmm. especially because you know, as the viewer, like, what he's doing, like, in his private life, and no one else knows. So it actually kind of makes it a little funny. And also some legitimately, like, horrifying moments. um, When he has, uh, what's her name? Mary the waitress. Mm -hmm. Like, Tied up in his, um, in his house when he puts, like, the mother's face over his own face and is, like, chasing her around. Like, that's pretty horrifying. Yes. Like, the dinner table scene where he's Mm -hmm. got all the bodies around. Mm -hmm. The way that he's, like, he's so genial and almost lovable in the way that he's doing it. But he's surrounded by, like, these dead bodies that he's mummified, basically, and preserved. Um... Does not have, like, a happy ending, you know. I mean, he eventually gets his comeuppance, but, you know, obviously, like, crazy, like, right under the nose of these people in the small town because they weren't able to see that he, like, needed help or was sick. Um, Really well-directed. Alan Ormsby is honestly pretty underrated, I think, um, in terms of, like, his contributions. And there's really not that many, but Ormsby... Was in uh, *Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things*, which is another one of my favorite like horror movies of all time. Um, also in *Death Dream*, which is like a pretty underrated movie. Both those are Bob Clark movies. Um, just a really good feeling for like what makes something both human and like horrific. And I don't know, like I I love the fact that it's pseudo docudrama, like the guy in his like tweed button up. You know coat with his glasses Mm -hmm. talking about the butcher of woodside or whatever and kind of like giving you the narrative when it needs to happen but then also allowing like Robert's blossom to sort of like just be that character yeah um again like i can't be said enough like how i don't know just both like over the top and believable his performances i mean we both grew up in a pretty rural area yeah and I can tell you that I've met that guy, like, in real life numerous times. Like, the guy that's, like, you feel is maybe a little, like, developmentally challenged or mentally unstable, but not to the point where you feel, like, creeped out by him. He's just kind of like, well, he's just weird, or he's just been alone for a long time, or this is just the way he was brought up. But, I mean, when even when I was a kid, like, I always have in the back of my mind, like, man, like, like what's going on like in that guy's house or like what's, you know, like you'd go into people's houses that were hoarders and they would have just like trash everywhere. And right. That's how his house is like set up in this movie. um, And you just feel like, like what else is happening behind, you know, like behind their closed doors. And it kind of like, I, I think this movie does a great job of sort of showing, you know, obviously like the extreme and unrealistic, even though like, again, like pretty ad- like accurately based on what Ed Gein did. <clears throat> the only thing that's really added in here that doesn't happen, like, that didn't happen with Ed Gein is the murder of, um, the mother's friend that tries to have sex with him through, like, the auspices of a seance. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really funny scene. The carnal love, yeah. yeah. one One of the funniest scenes because, yeah. like, Robert's Blossoms, who has no idea, like, what sex is or anything, just, like, reacting, like, to... Like, fully believing that this woman's dead husband is talking to him through her, yeah, and is led into like her bed because of it because he's like so unwilling to like even comprehend that it could be anything but true, right? Because he's talking to his mom at home and his mom's dead, sure, yeah, which is also just like the
0: slight like widening of his eyes, like when he's like sitting there, like and he thinks he's talking to her, and it's like There's this kind of like maybe slight disbelief, but like he, but he's kind of like, it's like, you know, he's kind of fascinated at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's a. It's a brilliant performance by it Robert is. Blossom. It's it, he's the thing that carries this movie really. When it comes down to it, like it's not a bad movie in any way. Like it's a good movie, there's, but it's like he really elevates this movie.
1: There's some really fantastic directorial choices. Oh, sure, absolutely, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the one thing that I actually find to be really effective is the like the wooden gates, like just swinging in the breeze mm-hmm. in an otherwise like completely still setting. The yeah. way that like dilapidated farmhouses and like stretches of trees or shot against like snow and like really like light blue like cold sky like it really gives you a sense of cold and desolation like every scene in that movie
0: right
1: and almost everything even the scene like a couple scenes that take place in town feel like isolated and feel the only scene that's like the only scenes that really like break out of that are the ones like when he goes to the woman's apartment a couple times and that's on purpose, you know, sure. to make it feel, like, garish and, like, you're supposed to feel that this woman, like, she she is kind of a joke. I mean, she's someone that's just trying to, like, get laid by using her dead husband. And yeah. those, the picture of her dead husband is one of the funniest uh-huh. things, like, with his, uh-huh. like, handlebar mustache and his big, like, double chin. It's yeah.
0: just, it's, it's really funny. It, um, yeah, it has an underrated sense of humor to it, I think. Yeah. Um. I mean, it's disturbing, but it has this underrated sense of humor to it, despite how disturbing it is. Because, I mean, like, the scenes, like, you talked about the dinner sequences and all those kind of things. And just, like, the creepiness of Blossom sitting there casually telling the guy that he works for and does... Oh, yeah, I got her her back at the house. I got her back at the house. Yeah, like, you know, it's... Um, and just admitting to murder. Admitting to, you know, having dead bodies in his house. And them them not believing him, obviously. And actually, oh, you shouldn't say things like that because you're going to get in trouble someday. If you keep telling yeah. people those kind of stories, not realizing. there's just an, and, and, and just the uncomprehending look in Blossom's eyes when he's being told that. Like, you know, well, what are you talking about? Like, you know, like he just doesn't understand. Yeah, because to him, like, it's just natural. Right. right? What he's yeah. doing is okay. Because yeah. he has no
1: comprehension of what legitimate human interaction is like because he was so and honestly again like very true to life with how like Ed Gein lived with his mother Mm -hmm. I mean he was a mama's boy that was like sheltered and she taught him that being with women was you know like tantamount to like suicide or like damnation um and this movie does a good job of like presenting that without going over the top and still making it horrific but also humorous at the same time i mean it's yeah. very I, I don't know i mean i don't know how many people like enjoy this movie i mean obviously judging by the number of reviews and the audience reaction it's not like a widely like loved movie but yeah you know.
0: i mean the, the, it's you know it's the same things you always bitch about all the time like uh, um boring like you know it's those kind of things so it's people looking at it and like the 2010s and kind of going back and looking at it and writing reviews saying that it's boring without any real justification yeah I mean like uh, the, the most I got out of it, a couple people like thought that the movie drug after the first 30 minutes um that's crazy it, it, it kind of like ramps up after that I know like, I mean weird. the
1: scene where he's driving his mother's body back from the cemetery and gets pulled over by the cop yeah who thinks that sure. he's been drinking. Yeah, and yeah. then he says, like, oh, I just slaughtered a pig. Yeah, and he ag-
0: apologizes to his mother's court right. like, oh, I'm sorry I called you a pig mama. Yeah. I, I didn't mean it. Like, you're not and, a pig. And I only laugh at it. I don't laugh at it when I'm watching it, necessarily. I laugh at it in hindsight. Like, you know, it's like I... It's not a thing where it's like I'm laughing at the movie like necessarily. I, I laugh at the scene where she's using her dead husband like. Yeah. But is, um but true. It, but at most of those things it's like it's still unnerving. Yeah. You know, it's not like a it's not like a kind of thing where you're laughing at it as you watch it. It's like after the fact you're laughing at it because there's nothing else to do because it's that kind of horrifying. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it's really like I mean him it, it actually it sort of is like very similar to the Hitchhiker Mary Marilyn Bernstein in Texas Chainsaw, or not hitchhiker, um, Grandpa Marilyn, proprietor Marilyn Bernstein in Texas Chainsaw, where they're in the truck. Yeah, where he's having the conversation, he's hitting her with a stick. Yes, I mean it's you know Blossoms like feels like he's legitimately having a conversation with his mother, and I honestly think that you kind of get that impression that like through his performance that it's believable Mm -hmm. that that's what's happening, and obviously like. There's always suspension of disbelief anytime you watch a movie, and sure. you know that it's a movie. But just the fact that it is presented in like the docu docudrama style, yeah. it, it kind of has
0: like a feel of like pseudo realism to it. Sure. Yeah. Normally, I would hate that, but in, in this movie, I liked it for some reason. I think it works. I don't know. Yeah. You know,
1: I, I can't even tell you why it works.
0: Yeah. But, but like, like yeah. I think it's because
1: there's a real deft touch to how it's used. Like, it's not. Yeah overused to the point where you get tired of it. Right. And it's not underused where it seems, like, frivolous. It's, like, just perfect. Unless it happened three times? Three or four. Mm-hmm. Um But it's perfect, like, punctuation to the different acts of the movie. You know, yeah. where the guy, like, almost like how if you were watching, like, 60 Minutes. Sure. You know, where some would were
0: coming and say, and then this happened, and this happened, and then it moved into this. Yeah. Um, the only other things that happens with some of these reviews, reading audience reviews, is that, um... It gets compared to another 1974 horror movie that you just mentioned, yeah. um, and 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 people compare it to that and find it wanting um, because of that comparison. Which I mean, I don't know if there's anything you can do about that to some degree, but I mean, it's, it's two different movies. But. I mean, it's and again, like
1: spoilers. Like we'll talk about Texas Chainsaw shortly, right? Yeah. It, it they they deal with similar ideas in completely different ways. Sure. And they do so in a way where it's not, like, derivative or anything. Like, it's such its own movie, even though there's similarities that... I mean, honestly, if you made me make a list of, like, my favorite horror movies of all time, I think Deranged is probably top Mm ten for me. Um, And maybe even top five. Like, I
0: genuinely love, like, this movie. I, um... In some ways like thinking back to that synapse review of Frightmare, I can see why this got forgotten again. Like where it's like most like people don't know about this oh, movie sure. it quite as much. It's because it does it doesn't push the boundaries necessarily. It's just for the time period, it's like, it pushes the boundaries a little bit, but not as much as Texas Chainsaw does. It's very... So it kind of falls into this gap where it's like Texas Chainsaw pushes those boundaries, and this kind of gets forgotten about because it didn't push them quite the same. Yeah, this is... Even though I think it's just um, uh, just as tense at times, like... With some of the things this is like Texas Chainsaw is like a Fellini
1: movie compared to like Deranged being like a Howard Hawks right mid sixties movie. Really like yeah. You know you're watching like what basically amounts yeah. to avant garde art house cinema in Texas right. Chainsaw, right. and in Deranged you're just watching a very competently made movie with an actual discernible narrative. Sure, but this is another movie that almost is like a hidden gem for me personally. I found this movie at a video clearance outlet for, like, $2 or something mm-hmm. in, I don't know, like, 96 or something like that on VHS. No idea what this movie was. Um, again, this is another movie that, like, I said Mad Magazine earlier, but it a minute, cracked. It was one of those, like, satire magazines that mm-hmm. did this. Like, when I saw it, I was like, oh, my God, like, like five of these scenes were used in, like, this horror image mm-hmm. thing. <clears throat> but I knew nothing about it. Um my friends who all were pretty, like, knowledgeable, like, cinephiles or whatever pretentious term you want to use, like, no one knew anything about it. And it was completely, like, a revelation to me, you know, when I was a kid, like, that this movie existed. And I've probably seen this movie eight or nine times, I would say, in my life. And as recently as Wednesday night with my son, like, we sat down and watched it. Hmm. And I love it every single time. Like, I... What if Frank you think of it? He liked it a lot. Yeah. He was, um, basically what your reaction was, like, horrified, and he found humor in it, Uh but was really affected by it. I mean, my kid lives on his cell phone. Sure. And even when we're watching stuff that he's interested in, he's still, like, on his phone 60% of the time. Uh And it got to the point where he put his phone down and was, like, actually watching this movie. Okay. Which I think is maybe one of the, I don't know, like, biggest compliments that, like, someone <laughs> from that generation can give to a film that they can, like, divest themselves from their social media along sure, it, to, sure. like, actually watch it. So, to the point where, like, I actually picked up my phone at one point to respond to a text and he's like, do you see what's happening? What is he doing? That doesn't make any sense. This is crazy. Like, he's got that woman's face. Right, yeah. And then I put my phone down and we watched it together. But it was, right, like, a really good experience and he really enjoyed it. Yeah, Honestly, like, a perfect, like, movie for this time of year like as you're going towards the end of October into November because it does feel cold and desolate you know it's it's got really good horror elements and it just it's a very fast movie very well paced and just really enjoyable
0: okay yeah no it's a good it's a good October movie Yeah, yeah all right let's go ahead and move on to number two okay so the second movie on your list is 1977 film Suspiria directed by Dario Argento Starring Jessica Harper. It has a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and 83% from audiences. You want to go ahead and explain the plot of this movie and why you like it.
1: So it follows um, a girl named Susie who goes to Munich to attend a prestigious dance academy. Um, On her way there, like her first night, she sees a girl fleeing the academy, like in terror, but can't tell why. Um... She later finds out that the girl has um, been murdered. Um, in the Academy, she has some uncomfortable and odd interactions with like the various like, teachers and adults that are there. Um, she befriends a girl named Sarah, and they kind of come to the conclusion that something is like amiss. Um, eventually, it turns out that it's a coven of witches that are running the Academy, um, led by this mysterious headmistress who's actually basically an immortal, like, witch. Um, And that's pretty much it. Like, she ends up, like, overcoming them in the end. Um, I really love this movie, mostly because it's just incredibly beautiful to look at. Like, even the death scenes and stuff have, like, an element of, I don't know, just, like, like, amazing, like, aesthetic, like, composition. Um, the colors in the movie are fantastic. Like, even from the outset, with Susie arriving at the airport in Munich, um, just reds and blues. Um, that's a pretty pretty consistent theme throughout the movie, is, like, the color red. Um, through the use of, like, lighting and through windows and just the way that, like, <clears throat> the coloration of, like, the halls and, like, the academy. Um, it's got some pretty pretty inventive death scenes, which is like one of Argento's like calling cards. Um, It's just his ability to film these like ridiculous like deaths, but still make them almost like it's almost like Renaissance paintings, the way that he like frames like people dying. Um, And I think that's probably on purpose in a lot of ways. Uh, it's, It's definitely got a really good sense of dread to it. That's like builds over the course of the movie. Um, you're as the viewer you're never it's never in question that there is something supernatural happening and that these people are being like murdered by a supernatural force but from an outside perspective you can see how Susie might think that she's maybe like going crazy um, just because ostensibly like there's nothing everything's explainable like up to a certain point even though from your perspective you can see that there is some inexplicable things going on. Um, One of the things I love the most about Argento and full disclosure and like all fairness, it's difficult to talk about Argento now because he's kind of like fallen from grace a little bit just because of accusations of like sexual harassment and misconduct and just his like overtly creepy behavior towards his daughter. But in the seventies, there's almost no other director that's as brilliant as Argento. Um, not only in like the visual aspect of how he films things, because he's got an amazing eye for just like framing shots and like setting up scenes, but in the way that Argento uses sound throughout his movies, like he's very—he has a very keen ear for the fact that sometimes the scariest thing you can hear is like the rustle of trees or like the wind mm. at your window, and he uses things like that to build really palpable tension in his movies without sometimes without ever even showing you the thing that you should be scared of. And honestly, in this movie, you don't really see anything until like, you don't see anything in Toto until like the very end of the movie. Like everything is kind of implied. And even like the deaths, which are pretty graphic <clears throat> still it, like the outside force is like an invisible force that's represented by, Honestly, one of the best horror movie soundtracks of all time. Like, the score for this movie is just amazing.
0: Um, but also... Completely odd. Oh, yeah, yeah. But effective. Like, it's it's one of the oddest soundtracks that works the best. Weird,
1: atonal, like, yeah. dissonant, like, noises and sounds. Which yeah.
0: um, you'll hear the theme um, yeah, at the beginning of this episode.
1: Honestly... On, on par, in my opinion, with John Carpenter and David Lynch as a director with just his inherent ability to make sound like a menacing thing. Like, And I, I think that Carpenter and Lynch are maybe like the masters and I put Argento like right up there with them. But, you know, when the the original girl, the first girl that you see murdered, the one that's like fleeing, <clears throat> number one, the scene where she's fleeing the school at night when Susie sees her. She's kind of far away. She's lit by what you presume is moonlight. She's almost moving in slow motion, but it's got a really like haunting, like ethereal quality to it, which I think is really effective. And then when she dies, the only thing that you ever really see is a set of eyes, like outside this window, which is, you know, several stories up, like in this apartment building. And then her like, crashing through this stained glass, like, skylight, basically, and falling to her, like, after being stabbed, like, multiple times by this hairy arm or whatever, and just, it's, it's so visceral, but it's also so beautiful, like, in its, its execution, and the combination of that with, like, the sound of the wind outside, with the fact that Argento films it almost in, like, medium-long, like, away from the window, where you can, like, see her silhouetted, in the window with like the light behind her but blackness all around i mean there's there's other movies where he does this to great effect as well um phenomena particularly which is my favorite argento movie but it's 1980 so it can't be on this list um but he's just such a master of like the scene itself and maybe not necessarily like the overall narrative because a lot of his movies have lulls and like action or whatever and he's not the best maybe at like connecting points but those individual scenes are amazing and suspiria has at least like four or five scenes
0: that visually are just stunning sure i i just let me jump in with the criticism a little bit since you just kind of brought up i think what is the main thrust of the criticism of the movie um And I have a few different people here, just very short quotes from um, Gary owner of the Washington Post, which is a contemporaneous review says one can't deny Argento's technical ability to manufacture jolts, but it's, he seems incapable of contriving a dramatic context that would make the jolts more enjoyable. Um, Ed Gonzalez of Slate says it may be Argento's silliest work, but while the plot, but while the plot is scarily sensible. The film rightfully earns its notoriety by Argento's fabulous and detailed engagement in reworking of fairy tale motifs, and then he goes on to praise the direction of the film. Our good friend Dave Kerr um, Hmm. gives his kind of uh, overwrought, half-positive review, and Dario Argento's grossly overstated mise en scène adds some perverse interest to this routine. Horror film from 1976. Sargento worked so hard for his effects, throwing around shot cuts, colored lights, and peculiar camera angles that it would be impolite, not to be a little frightened. Um, So, the commonality that I found, and I just pulled those three, but it's like, when I found criticism of it, the criticism was that um, it was the plot of a movie it was and and i would tend and i think that's what i was trying to explain to you off air was that i think this is a movie of fantastic scenes like especially like in terms of the tension building and because uh, i watched this and i loved it when i was younger and i still really like it but it's like watching it again i think it's a movie of fantastic scenes like i love that scene as goofy as it is with the fake dog, kind of, like, when the murder actually happens a little bit. Oh, the blind guy. The, the lead-up to the blind guy yeah. getting killed and the emptiness of the area that he's sure. in and the yeah. isolation. And, again, once you said sound, it's like, yeah, there's, like, this kind of, like, rustling of the wind. The wind, the, the, the dissident, like, I, that that score, like, just. Yeah, right, the, yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's, yeah. like, it's, it's a it's brilliant amazing. scene. Like, now, yeah, the dog in 2018 is a little hokey, like, you know, grabbing onto his throat because it's obviously it's kind of up but whatever, like, I think that's a really af- effective scene. And I think, like, a lot of those murder scenes are very effective in that way. But it's, like, I think it's the in-between. It's, like, you know, connecting the scenes together into this plot. And I understand the plot. And it's just, like... But it's, like, I felt in-between a lot of those scenes. The movie drug some. Watching it again 20-some years later. So I'm
1: curious that... <clears throat> and I, I noticed this because I've, I've seen... Probably an inordinate amount of, like, foreign horror in Mm -hmm. my life, and especially Italian horror. So, in most Italian horror, what you're watching is an English dub of something that was filmed in its native language. Mm -hmm. But with Argento's movies, you're watching English-speaking actors act to a director whose native language is not English. Yeah. And honestly, when you watch, like, Guillermo del Toro's early movies, Mm -hmm. you see the same thing. Like. Mm -hmm. Um, Devil's Backbone is a much more effective movie than maybe, say, Hellboy, because the characters in Devil's Backbone are speaking Del Toro's native language, so they're being directed by someone that's speaking the same tongue as them, Mm -hmm. whereas later, like, and I think there's some brilliant, like, visuals in Hellboy, but Hellboy falls flat almost in terms of, like, its dialogue, because I think that... When there's a disconnect between the language that the director speaks and the language the principal actors speak, I, I think it kind of falls apart a little. Bit. I, I think that's probably a very apt, um, um, you yeah. So maybe it's maybe in Italian, maybe in its original incarnation, maybe that plot is a little more driven and a little yeah. more makes a little. Not, not that the plot doesn't make sense, but there yeah. are points where the connection really is just from. I need to get from one death to the next death. Sure. And how do I get there? Yeah. Um, and Persona or Phenomena um, suffers from the same thing. But again, Phenomena is Jennifer Connolly and Donald Pleasence. Like the principal sure. actors in that movie are English speaking actors. Um, but the stuff in Suspiria that works is just yes, absolutely. amazing. Yeah. Like, again, like, you know, I already mentioned the scene where the girl goes through the skylight. Um, Argento is. Terrified, I guess, of like the idea of glass, like cutting people, because yeah. some of the most effective deaths in any of his movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, when that girl is getting like drug out the window before she gets hung, like her face being pressed against that glass is yeah. so uncomfortable yes. and so, yeah. I don't know, like viscerally disturbing. Yeah. To like I, th- I think he has the fear of being cut. Yeah, and it, it but it's yeah. it's a fear. Like nobody
0: wants to have like For sure. Skin. And the way that he almost like, but I think some people have a particular. I I, I can I can kind of um, empathize a little bit. Like I I have a very deep deep fear of like you know if I had to be chosen to be shot or be you know cut, like I would take shot. Like yeah. I have a deep fear of the idea of like knives or something cutting into me. Yeah, Argento's
1: villains are definitely like. <sighs> very physical in the way they murder
0: their people because it is almost always, like, knives mm-hmm. or <clears throat> sharp implements. Yeah. You know, I, I would I would be fascinated to, like, find that out. I should, you know, I probably should go do research on it to see if he's talked about it because it has to be childhood trauma. And that happens in Phenomena, too. Like,
1: there's a couple scenes, two, two specific scenes of deaths in Phenomena that involve
0: someone, like, crashing through glass and mm-hmm. leading to their, like, yeah. their death. But even you think about like the the razor wire and this, like yeah. you know, the idea of being cut, like is which is such an
1: uncomfortable scene where she's struggling get the to the razor out. wire, yeah.
0: yeah,
1: um, and then gets her throat cut in like very graphic and very up close fashion, um, yeah. almost like like Unshen Andalou in the sense that it's like so, like graphic and so up close mm-hmm. that it feels realistic, yeah, um, maybe a little bit of a hokey ending in the sense that like she just stabs the. Immortal Witch and the Witch dies and it causes everything to fall apart. I mean it does yeah. kind of feel like sort of rushed, but Yeah. Like everything that leads up to that point, especially her like going through the secret room to find like the coven mm-hmm. <laughs> like plotting her death and then
0: killing like the the witch in the end is it's it's all really effective. Yeah. Uh in two thousand eighteen like one of the only like really hokey things I thought besides the dog, um and rewatching it. Cause a lot of it holds up, I think, in terms of even like today by some of today's standards. But um, I thought that the the sequence where it's like the the head witch is behind a curtain, um, at one point, like when they're like sleeping in an yeah, area. That's after the larva's is falling from the ceiling. Yes, after lar. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, which is another really. Yeah, he, he does. Scene. He does. Yeah, he does hit a lot of good stuff that people are scared of. Um, like with that. Um, too, but he um. But he, like, films are behind that curtain, and it's, like, I think in 2018, I don't know why, but it just came off to me as, like, really hokey. Um, that whole sequence with, like, her behind, like, this shade. It, I mean, to the point where it's, like, you know what it made reminded me of? Um, Golden Child. Oh, huh, yeah. Like, I mean, it, which is played for comedy most of the time. It, and then it doesn't then, really I mean,
1: make sense why... So the whole premise there is that, um, this Greek witch came to Munich... And founded this school so she could, like, basically live off the life essence of, like, young girls.
0: Right.
1: Um, And pretends to be out of country all the time. Mm -hmm. So, no one suspects. Because even though she's in the house, like, doing these things, like, no one suspects her. So, it's kind of weird that, like, she chooses the one place where everyone is to, like, manifest, kind of. But leading up to that point, the way the camera pans over. So, to set the scene a little bit, like because there's been larva discovered in the ceiling ostensibly because like their food shipments have rotted um they're in this the ballroom like the dance hall and they have all these curtains like strung up and all these beds set around and the score which has been like quiet up to this point for like five or ten minutes builds up again with like the suspicious score and the camera kind of like is sweeping above like these things like it's almost like this supernatural force like looking down and sort of i don't know like scoping them out and like choosing its victims so it's really effective up to that point and like maybe a little hokey but like the reds and the i don't know like i
0: there's so much in this that like allows it to rise above some of those things that are yeah I, i mean i think the biggest complaint it probably is really this like the rather paper flint Thin plot that is connected together, you know, um, and maybe you're right. Maybe it's the the, the non-native language. Yeah,
1: and Argento honestly like has a string <clears throat> of just fantastic movies around this time. So he has this. <clears throat> there's um, Deep Red. There's Tenebre, um Inferno, and then Persona, all of which are fantastic. Um, Phenomenal. Oh yeah, I, I don't know why I keep saying Persona. Yeah you probably really want to talk about that movie yeah time. we we, we talked about some, yeah. uh, some yeah. um, just really great like well done horror films that border the supernatural or overtly supernatural but always have like psychological elements I mean he really is like for this time period one of the masters of just filming like your subconscious fears and making them Like, real, basically. Um, And again, like, one of the things that I love the most about Suspiria is that while terrible things are happening at night, they're happening in well-lit places, they're happening in places where it's not like a traditional horror setting. Like, a guy, the the blind guy you're talking about with the dog ripping out his throat, he's just walking across the plaza, you know? It's just, it's an open-air place, and there's police officers, like, a block away from him when it happens. So it's not like the isolated farmhouse the camp in the woods you know the haunted mansion in the middle of nowhere like these are populated areas and the idea that these evil presents can still get you during these times I and mean, it's pretty terrifying um there's another movie that almost made this list because i really do love it um that sort of has the same idea which is um to the devil a Daughter." And it's, it's got a very similar, like, feel. Like, I'm not nearly as competent in terms of its direction, but honestly, like, probably better plotted and better paced. Um, but just the same idea that, like, the supernatural can exist in plain sight because it's something that, like, to quote that movie, you know, the supernatural is something that's not supposed to happen, but it does happen. And I think that's what Suspiria does the best, is, like, there's all these rich people sending their daughters to this exclusive yeah. school where they're being murdered to, like, support the immortal life of this witch. Sure.
0: I mean, it's very similar, like, um, <gasps> I have it on my mind because of my class right now, but, like, political ads, like, you know, or just commercials do that all the time, where it's, like, if, uh, you know, uh, uh, subtly, like, you know, if you're not really paying attention to the setting necessarily, but it's, like, any, like, uh, uh, home alarm system or something like that, it's, like, it's always the trappings of um, upper middle class households because it's the place you should feel the safest. Sure. You know, it's like, you know, if it it were done in, you know, um, you know, row houses in an inner city, it's like, it doesn't have the same effect because it's like people already have the assumption, you know, that maybe that place is not as safe, but it's like the upper middle class household you assume to be safe. So very similarly, you know, it's, it's just something that people, like, you know, now it's commercialized almost, like, the idea. But at that time, I'm not sure if it was quite as prevalent.
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think of other movies from that time period that kind of
0: share the same idea.
1: I can't really think of it. Because we go, like,
0: you know, to just the other movies, like, I mean, I guess Bay of Blood has a, may, maybe a little bit of that, like, going on. But Even it's like, so. It's, it's you look at the part. other movies on this list, it's like they're all places where horror might happen. Yeah. So, like where it, it makes sense. Right. Yeah. But like in this
1: one, I mean, honestly, it's a place the least likely place for the horror to be and like maybe the most definitely like out of this list the most overt like supernatural horror. Sure. Like Ashura. Yeah. Um I don't know, just yeah. it it I I saw Suspiria really early on in my life of like watching horror movies and I loved it when I was a kid and I've seen it probably like, four or five times since then including this afternoon watching it again like in preparation for this podcast but to me like it holds up entirely like it's a yeah. it's a beautiful movie um, even though it's a little clunky dialogue wise and like narrative wise like you forget about those things even in small moments that maybe shouldn't be terrifying like her in the car in the rainstorm when she's first like entering Munich, like it feels foreboding and it feels menacing. <clears> Bless you, <clears throat> thank you. Even though there's nothing that to this point has shown you that it should feel that way, like it still feels that way, and it's it's really effective. Yeah, I mean he's he's a brilliant director, like aesthetically. Yeah. And it's a shame that he's kind of fallen off in the past couple of decades yeah. in terms of that because he really has not made a good movie in quite some time. But
0: it happens sometimes. I mean, with older directors. Yeah. If anybody's looking for this movie, by the way, um, the only place that you can actually find it when we were looking for it is a um, streaming app called Tubi, T-U-B-I, um, which uh, it's the only place that you, that's available other than DVD for you to watch it. Um, it has ads, but um, it's free. Um, all the stuff on Tubi is, so I was not even familiar with the yeah. streaming app before this time, but... Um,
1: I, I think this is... A, so, this movie's has been remade... Yeah. Um, more of like an inspired by and not a direct remake sure. that's being released um, early November, I think November 2nd. Next thing I was going to ask
0: you, go ahead. Um,
1: and I think that's why it's not streaming anywhere because I think they're trying to build mm. anticipation and some distance between the original and this. So okay. people go into this the new movie fresh without having seen the original, yeah. um, which I find to be like a really cheap tactic yeah um, but honestly like from what I've seen from the trailers of the, the the remake and just like some really like critical reaction like it sounds pretty amazing yeah and no. it doesn't it doesn't sound it, it looks sound, like it has problems yeah yeah and it really feels like it's the best kind of remake which is inspired by as mm-hmm. opposed to derivative of sure. right so I'm actually really excited to see it it's not psycho
0: being remade really shot for shot yeah which is yeah. ridiculous
1: sure um So yeah, I mean, if, if you appreciate horror, if you're, if you have, if you're not like squeamish about seeing blood and you appreciate like really powerful, like aesthetics, like it's definitely worth watching. And again, like I said with the range, like probably one of my
0: top 10, top 20 horror movies of all time. And I'm just really happy that, um, (laughs) I did, we did a horror list and I got to talk about Argento rather than Fulci. Mm -hmm. Um. Okay. you almost
1: talked about full because we almost did uh the beyond but yeah because i do love that movie yeah um
0: yeah. Okay. yeah um so moving on to um probably the biggest horror movie like really in the 1970s uh, when it comes down to it like at least in hindsight um number one is the texas chainsaw massacre which was put out in 1974 directed by toby hooper Uh, Starling Marilyn Burns, Gunnar Hansen, it's at 88% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 81% by the audience. Do you want to go ahead and just tell us what this movie's about?
1: Um, so full disclosure before I start, like, just with, like, the plot synopsis, if you pressured me to tell you what my favorite movie of all time is, my answer would be Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um... We talk a little bit about, like, preparation for the podcast just in passing, but, like, a little bit behind the curtain, you know, when we come up with the list, like, when when Chris sort of, like, comes up with a the theme and then I make my list, I don't really do a lot of preparation. Like, sometimes I'll watch the movies again if I haven't seen them, but I don't write down my thoughts. I don't, like, do a lot of real, like, prep work for it. I kind of, I, I prefer to do it, like, naturally. Mm-hmm. I actually had to do prep work for this because I feel like I could talk about Texas Chainsaw for two hours straight and still not hit everything that I love about this movie. So if I tend to... If, if it feels like I'm saying too much, it's just because like I love so much about this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, like all great horror, it's a pretty simple plot. Um, there's a group of early 20s kids in the 70s um, who are going to Texas to number one, like, sort of claim the remains of their grandfather from a graveyard that's been, like, vandalized, and then visit the old homestead. Um, They encounter some weird characters along the way, and then end up, like, at the homestead, basically out of gas, so they have to go to this other, like, farm that's nearby, and then basically end up being tortured and murdered. Um, by a family of like anachronistic cannibals that just live in the Texas wilderness um one of again like maybe my favorite movie of all time um one of the most adventurous films I've ever seen in terms of the way that it's, it's shot um thematically just the way that it's there's almost no hope in this movie at all like it's very bleak um, and to the point where the tagline for this movie when it came out was who will survive and what will be left of them yeah. which in my opinion is like maybe the greatest tagline yeah. like ever um, it like if you've ever walked outside at like noon in the middle of July and just felt like the stifling heat and stillness of like midsummer, mm-hmm. like this film is maybe aesthetically like the best representation of that feeling. Like it feels, it feels like time is almost frozen, like for the majority of this movie, especially early on until, like really, like the moment reaches its crisis. You know when the the like the teens, the twenty somethings, whatever the the characters are like being systematically, like, taken out, like, in this, this place, um, set, like, directly, like, set direction-wise, it's brilliant, you know, like, you get early indications as things aren't right, um, especially once they get to the farmhouse, you know, like, when they're walking in the woods, you have the wind chimes that are made of, like, watches and nails that hang from the trees, there's the fact that they're using, like, the military, um, camouflage netting to cover up, like, generators and whatnot. Um, and then once they get in the house, you know, I mean, just brilliant. Like, the chairs and couches made of bones, the chicken feathers all over the place, like, the way that it quick cuts, the way that it uses sound, like, it just, it it almost, like, scrambles your brain when you're watching it. Um, one of the most iconic horror villains of all time. Um, honestly on par with Freddie, Jason, Pinhead, Michael Myers, like if if there's like a top five like iconic horror villains like Leatherface is definitely in that top five. Um it has like it, it starts with almost this pseudo in the same way that Derange like presents itself as almost like a docudrama. You know, it's got John Larroquette, like narrating this thing that it's based on true events and the horror of like this one day in the summer in Texas and I don't know. There's honestly nothing to me personally negative about this movie. I think that it's maybe the most effective, visceral representation of horror like ever put to film. And I think that if, especially the first time you see it, like we've never seen Texas Chainsaw before, and maybe, maybe in two thousand and eighteen because of all the remakes and reboots, like this is impossible. But seeing the original movie for the first time was like a life-altering event for me. And when I first saw Texas Chainsaw, I was actually probably like 16 years old. So I'd been watching horror movies for quite some time, which is weird that I hadn't like gotten to this movie yet. But um, my parents had gone out of town. And we, you know, my parents, like I grew up in rural Maryland um, between like two farms, one of which was like semi-abandoned. And so my parents are going out of town and I rented this as one of my five movies to watch over the weekend. And so it's one o'clock in the morning and I'm watching this movie in the middle of the summer, like by myself, like surrounded by woods and farmland. And it was like a really like affecting experience and very like tense. I don't know, just. Like, it just, it just hits you. Like, it's like gut punch after gut punch. And it's it's got this weird, like, almost alien feel to it, like, early on. And then it just builds, like, these series of... Even after people are murdered, like, you, you still get the feeling the first time seeing it that maybe some of these characters might be okay. And then it just, like, continuously, like, hits you with it. And doing so while never really showing you any overt violence or death. Like everything is more implied or sort of shown like at the corner of your eye, as opposed to like really showing you like penetration or squirts of blood or anything like that. Like it's all just based on what your brain is filling in beyond what Hooper showing you like on the screen.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. Going back to the heat comment, like about like, you know, kind of being so visceral in terms of how <clears throat> you know feeling that kind of like July heat um I think one of the elements like here of this movie that I and I think you might have mentioned it briefly but that's always like hit me so hard is like that so much of it takes place during the day. Yeah. Like that's the true one of the true horror elements of horror of it to me is that we we're, we're conditioned up into this point roughly that horror takes place at night. Yep. And suddenly, it's in broad daylight, because it's in the middle of nowhere really, it's in broad daylight that these people are being butchered and hunted. Sure. And that's one of the more horrifying elements of the movie to me. And honestly, not even hunted,
1: because none of them have a chance at all to survive, because sure. it's so immediate... and. Right. I mean, the the curly-haired guy, who's the first one that gets taken out, like, he's in the house, and... Is that Kirk? Yeah, Kirk. Kirk... Kirk and Pam are the two. Yeah. And then Jerry and Sally, and then Franklin. Right. So Kirk is just in this house. He's just looking for gas, and the door opens, and there's Leatherface.
0: Like, that's your first real introduction. And that hammer comes down, and it's just done. And that scene to me like that scene to me like epitomizes like what the what's brilliant about this movie like I, I, you and I always disagreed like you know to me like my favorite horror movie of all time is the shining like but this is like a, I understand why this is yours like it's like it's a it's a one D. like I understand like you know how effective this movie is but that's the key to me is like when leatherface Like, just, like, that door opens, and that hammer comes down, and he drags him in, and then slams that door shut. You look at the movies, the the other movies on this list, I'll just take Deranged. Like, um, and I think, I can't remember if Frightmare does it too, but it's like, Deranged made the exact same year, and they freeze frame, like, things before violence happens at times. Yeah. Um, and while I like Deranged, it's creepy, like, you know, um... It's like the quickness, like you said, immediacy. I think it's like the immediacy of this movie, the like adds a realness to it, and it feels more impactful because you're actually seeing it play out. And even though it's like you're not seeing the actual action, like you said, like you know, it's just the quickness of it, it's just brutal, like you know, that's all it is. It's pure brutality. Mm -hmm. It's like they stop the brutality in movies before this it seems a lot of times like okay yeah bay of blood like you know you see this hatchet go through the face and it's like but that's a shock value that's coming through the through the graphic nature of the assault like you're not even getting the graphic nature you're just getting like what he's filming in a medium or long shot a lot of times Yeah. yeah that's a good one and you now you get to see it. It's not this close up of the like the you you see the hatchet in the murderer's hand, and then the hatchet is in the face, and you see that kind of makeup job and the twitching. It's like you know that's there for shock. This isn't there for shock so much. This is there for what it's called. It's horror. Yeah. Like as opposed to shock value. And by seeing it like in that Leatherface scene, you see it from the end of the hallway, so it's in long shot basically. Um, from the door. Like from you're, the doorway. You're, you're right. Yeah, in the scene right. with her. Yes. And, Kirk. and yeah. Uh, and so it's in long shot, and you just see that brutality and that quickness play out where it's just like one shot, you know, like drag him in, slam the door. Oh. And that kind of. um, um That kind of. um. Yeah, like just like immediacy—I I can't think of any other word yep. of it—is what separates and like moves this forward to me, ahead of like all the other horror films at the time that had been out. Sure, because it's it's almost avant-garde in the sense that the
1: horror is more the horror is less what's happening to the people and more how it's affecting you, and most like movies. From this time period on and even before that are about killers or whatever it's more about showing the death right like it's more about like giving you the reaction of seeing the death but here it's more about the implication that that death is just so sudden and you know, and there's a really good sense of foreboding that's built in this movie. Like even after Kirk is killed and Pam is like shoved on a meat hook, which again, another thing that like Yeah, the meat hook. Like you think you see it, but right. you never actually see it no, happen. You don't. I mean it's you just don't. implied that yeah. that it happened to her. Yeah. At least like the penetration portion of it. Mm-hmm. Um to the mm-hmm. point where this movie was like banned in a lot of countries. Sure. Um, because of the fact that people Like, Hooper actually made a movie that he thought could be rated PG because he showed so little blood and so little, like, actual death. And, like, it was, like, banned outright because people felt that it was too violent. But, you know, when when Pam and, and Kirk are walking up to the house the first time and she's got that swing that she's sitting on and it's just, like, the way that it frames through the structure of the swing set like, up to the porch and just the stillness and desolation of the area without showing, like, any dilapidation of the house. Like, the house isn't falling apart or anything. It's just, like, you feel that foreboding. And the first time you see it, like, you don't necessarily know why it feels uncomfortable, but it still feels uncomfortable because of, you know, the low angles and just the way he films it, and I don't know. I mean, honestly, again, like, there's like, I could talk shot for shot about how much I love this movie and how I think that every single thing in this movie works. Um, but just, like, in, in broadcloth or whatever, like, I think that, <clears throat> I think there's no more effective movie that just makes you feel like the abject horror of senseless, like, violence,
0: really. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I want to turn a little bit to a couple pieces of criticism. Did you re-read, reread Ebert's review by any chance? I didn't want to. Um, I haven't read it since I was like 16 years old. 17. Right, yeah. Um, because I know we've talked about this software before, and like Ebert's thoughts on it. So Ebert gives it two out of four stars. Um, and I'll start with his positives first. Like his, Because he does. He He's a little dismissive, sure, but he says that he has a grudging admiration for... The technical aspects of this movie and thinks that they're fairly well done throughout um and puts it in what he calls select company with night of the living dead and last house on the left films that he says are quote better than the genre requires so he's putting it in pretty high company in the sense of like how he views horror like in terms of its technical abilities and those kind of things um he, but, I mean, his main criticism of the genre is that um, that it has no value other than the terror it produces. Like, for instance, he says that no motivation, there's no motivation, no background, no speculation on causes is evident anywhere in the film. It's simply an exercise in terror. And to him, like those type of movies that are like that hold no merit or weight to them outside of their technical proficiency... In achieving that end, um, where is the? So here's my question out of that. Like, I guess, and to respond to Ebert is, where is the value in this film beyond the horror, to you, if there is any? I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but
1: I mean, number one, any movie that is as well made and as beautiful as Texas Chainsaw is. And beautiful in its own way. I mean, obviously not like traditional, like beauty. Sure. Has merit, right? Like, otherwise, why would anyone watch like uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky movie? You know, because where's the merit in that friggin', like, psychedelic nonsense, right? But I mean, like, visually, those movies are stunning. And so that's where the merit lies. I, I think, again, and we, we, we've we talked about this before, and I'm sure it'll come up again, because I, I truly feel that it's important to talk about is that I think horror gets dismissed because people inherently feel dirty about being scared. It's like the same thing as pornography, right? Like you want to watch attractive naked people have sex because it's appealing, but you don't necessarily want to talk about the fact of why that's appealing because we have such a puritanical like society. And I think that fear is the same way. I think that, there's a certain titillation to being scared Hmm. that you don't necessarily want to like talk about, especially in 1974 because it's not socially acceptable. Right. You know, because people are so closed minded that they can't see a benefit in embracing the fact that as a human being, you have a range of emotions and not everything in your life is going to be pristine and, like, sacrosanct and, like, it's going to turn out well, you know? I mean, like, bad things happen, and I think that embracing those things is a natural part of being a morally conscious human being, and, I mean, obviously, like, there are certain movies that are 100% meant to do nothing but titillate you. And I don't think the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a titillating movie. I don't think it's a gratuitous movie. I think it, number one, so the motivation of these characters, the motivation of the cannibal family is that they work the slaughterhouses, you know, and automation, like mechanization, the industrial age led to them being driven out of the thing that they were good at doing that provided for their family. So now they have to provide in other ways <clears throat> so they run this rundown gas station in the middle of nowhere and they murder people in eat 'em. Is that like a robust motivation? Like no. But it's enough that it explains as much as this movie
0: needs explanation, like why it's happening. And and, and when what's buried underneath that is a critique of capitalism. Sure. <laughs> and This is what capitalism leads to. I mean Hooper is a pretty is cannibalism. Yeah, yeah. A pretty like liberal guy at this point. Sure, sure.
1: Um, I don't really know his politics, but, you know, he's yeah. a young filmmaker. In the sure. same way that you watch, like, early movies from Spielberg and Lucas and Coppola. Sure. Yeah. And you can see, like... Yeah. And I use those guys because they're coming into their own at the same, like, time period. You know, you can see, like, that idealism in it. And Hooper is an idealist that's showing his idealism almost, like, through the complete opposite method of, like, showing the bleakness of humanity and the bleakness... You know almost like the emotional and moral desolation that can exist when people are just trying to survive yeah. and you know the performances in this movie aren't i mean most of these actors are not people that went on to become like famed actors i mean there's only maybe jim jim Sedow is the proprietor and you know Gunnar hansen is leatherface and marilyn burns i think has been in a, was in a few movies John thererickcut, you can't really count like showing sure, the narration yeah. for it. but most of these people are just local yeah. actors. I mean, Hooper was making them work seven days a week in the middle of July in like hundred and ten degree heat. and they were just kind of crazy. and he, you know, it shows, but it's I don't know. I, I think that I think that you need to be scared once in a while. and I think that in order to be, a truly complete human you need to understand that you're gonna have different emotions and different feelings and it's okay to have those feelings you know like just like as long as no one's like being hurt or being like forced into it like there's really nothing wrong with pornography and horror movies are the same like it fulfills a basic human need to be scared without the actual threat of true like bodily harm to yourself right mm-hmm. like to feel that way without actually being in a situation where you could be in true peril yeah. and i think that's an important thing you know i and again i when you read like ebert reviews from much later in his life i think that he comes around to the idea that that's true but in the early 70s like you would have gotten i i would imagine blacklisted mm-hmm. if you came out in defense of some of these movies
0: yeah so um, have you ever uh, read Stephen King's "Why We Crave Horror Movies" essay that he wrote? Mm, maybe. Um, I mean, it's he echoes a lot of what you just said in terms of like the need for these kind of things. Um, he says in it that the potential lyncher is in almost all of us, and every now and then he has to be let loose to scream and roll around in the, in the grass. Our emotions and our fears form their own body and we recognize that it demands its own exercise to maintain proper muscle tone. Certain of these emotional muscles are accepted, even exalted in civilized society. They are, of course, the emotions that tend to maintain the status quo of civilization itself. Love, friendship, loyalty, kindness. These are all the emotions that we applaud, emotions that we have moralized in the couplets of Hallmark cards. When we exhibit these emotions, society showers us a positive reinforcement. We learn, even um, before we get out of our diapers, Um when as children we hug our rotten little puke of a sister and give her a kiss all the aunts and uncles smile and twit and cry isn't he the sweetest thing um we get treats for those kind of things he says but if we deliberately slam the rotten little puke of a sister's fingers in the door sanctions follow um from the aunts and uncles and parents instead of um you know treats Um, he says anti-civilization Emotions don't go away. They demand periodic exercise. We have such sick jokes as what's the difference between a truckload of bowling balls and a truckload of dead babies. Um, such a joke may surprise a laugh or a grin out of, out of us even as we recoil a possibility that confirms the thesis. If we share the brotherhood of man, we also share the insanity of man. None of which is intended as a defense of either the sick joke or the insanity, but merely as an explanation of why the best horror films much like the best fairy tales managed to be reactionary anarchist anarchistic and revolutionary at the same time and it's like i can't think of a better film to kind of portray like you know that whole yeah. idea of it being um reactionary anarchistic and revolutionary like all at the same time as something like this um yeah i just thought it was uh, like i th- i've thought about this film before when i've like read that and yeah um, and it seems like a really good, just like echoing what you were saying about Ebert is like, this isn't like, he doesn't like it because he's personally offended. And it's like, we've seen that in Blue Velvet when we talked about David sure. Lynch, you know, he didn't like the way women were treated. So therefore, you know, it's not a good movie. Yeah, for, I don't like how it makes me feel. I don't like how it makes me feel. Right. And it's, it's kind like of what this we're
1: coming into in this day and age. Really, it is like right now is yeah. that people feel like if something makes them uncomfortable or if it's personally offensive to them, that it doesn't have any merit whatsoever. But I think sometimes you have to, like, you know, whatever. like to go with, like, Bergman kind of as an example. Like, you have to look through that glass darkly, right? Like, you Mm -hmm. have to be able to see, like, your dark reflection to kind of truly appreciate the light. Like, there's no... Like, what is good without evil to reflect against? And so, like, in order... I, I honestly feel... I mean, I'm not the most well-adjusted person, but I'm definitely not like antagonistic or violent towards people. And I think sure. one of the reasons that is is because I allow myself an outlet to, right. you know, look at like the worst parts of humanity without having to get involved in it myself. Sure. And I think that film is one of the greatest ways to do that. Yeah, and definitely, yeah. again, so much I could talk about in this movie that yeah. I love, like scene for scene. Yeah. But just one of my absolute favorite films of all time and right. I own Texas Chainsaw Massacre two VHS's and three <laughs> DVDs I have posters t-shirts action yeah. figures I mean there's nothing about this movie that doesn't fascinate me and like watching it again last week for the like third time honestly probably in the past 12 months like still yeah. just mind-blowing like every time I see it how much I love this
0: movie just out of curiosity you think Dave Kerr liked this movie
1: Probably not. I don't know what he would. I don't
0: know. It's actually, it's actually a middling review. Yeah. Like uh, it was, it's surprising to me because it's contemporaneous. Um, um, he said the, uh, the bloodbath cheapy uh, acquired a considerable reputation among ideologically oriented critics who admired the film's sneaky equation of middle class values with cannibalism and wholesale slaughter. The plot, such as it is, concerns a group of teenagers that fall into the hands and knives and ultimately chainsaws of a backwoods family of homicidal maniacs. The picture gets you more through its intention- intensity than its craft, but Hooper has real talent. Um, which is coming from Dave Kerr's, like, a blowing review, almost. Um, True. So, <clears throat> so yeah, that was, I just thought it was interesting that, like, out of everybody, Kerr liked this movie. Um Last one I'll bring up to you, um... It seems like much more of a... It comes from Time Out London. It's a little bit more of like a modern review. But, um... It claims that the movie's woman-hating. In a lot of ways. Um... I'll I'll give you one quote from it. It says it's notable only for taking woman in jeopardy about as far as it can go. The three men are dispatched unceremoniously and the women, brawless and hot pants respectively. Um their screams rising into orgasms of fear are toyed with endlessly while the camera often assumes a pointedly aggressive stance. Um, and that's just a little snippet of that review from Time Out London. But um, it, it, that, it definitely goes into talking about how the film, like, they view it as, like, a, a woman-hating film. So,
1: number one, the only person that survives is a woman.
0: Yeah.
1: Out of, like, the five, whatever, yeah. like, protagonists. Yeah. Number two, I think, I think they take not great pains, but the villains don't care that it's a woman. Right? Like it's meat, right. and you know the, the proprietor, the father character, whatever, <laughs> like specifically says, "I wish
0: it could be different, young lady," but mm-hmm. you know we have to, like meat is meat. Like we, this is just how we
1: what, what we have to do. Mm-hmm. There's definitely a huge vein of misogyny in like seventies and eighties horror films. I would never, you know, with, with the hindsight of like, like the modern eye, like you can look back and kind of cringe at some of this stuff, but that is not Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And honestly, the Maryland, like Sally and Pam are the two most savvy characters in the film, like out of the protagonists, like the men are idiots. And they definitely are just, like, again, like, he's, they they say in that review, like, they're dispatched so much easier because they're dumb. Yeah. Like, the women last longer because they have some element of, I don't know, like...
0: They have a survival
1: instinct. Sense right. Right. Yeah. about right. them. And Marilyn Burns, Sally, or whatever, escapes right. at the end because she's able, like, well, number one, because she has a survival instinct, but she almost gets away, she does get away, like, in the initial... Mm -hmm. encounter with Leatherface and then, you know, goes to the proprietor who takes her, takes her back with terrible, like, horrifying scene. Right. Him hitting her with that broom. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, 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 that's bad criticism. Like, look, I understand Ebert's criticism. I understand what Dave Kerr's saying, like, especially from that time period, but that just feels like somebody who's trying to make a point about something else and just using, a popular horror film is their platform like I I don't think there's any legitimacy to that criticism at all all
0: right <clears throat> any final thoughts
1: on Texas Chainsaw yeah I, if you've never seen the original you need to watch it um, I would. how do you feel s-
0: about the sequels and remakes and all that stuff uh, Ask that real quick. Uh, the second
1: is I really enjoy the second movie mm-hmm. although I don't know that it's necessarily a good sequel I think it's almost a parody yeah um, which is funny, like Hooper like going back and like parodying his own film by making it like this Grand no, like over the top, whatever. Um, the third one is mediocre. Uh, Next Generation's not very good, but whatever. Um, Next Generation
0: plays the comedy a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. So does the third one. I mean the yeah. third one's just yeah. over
1: the top. Right. Um The modern remakes and sequels are middling at best to unwatchable at worst uh, they don't they don't understand what makes the original scary yeah. and they try to compensate by being like quote unquote like over the top crazy you know with um, Arlie Army and stuff it's just it's just bad it's it's not very good cinema Um. I mean one of the things that makes one of the things that makes it a horror villain iconic is, and there's some exception to this, so, like, Freddy Krueger is an exception to this, but when you look at, like, Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees, Leatherface, even Pinhead, to an extent, there's no rhyme or reason to it, you know? Like, you are you don't need a deep psychological profile and backstory for Leatherface to be scary, you know? And so, like, it was a problem with The Hills Have Eyes, removed. Like, when you put too much backstory in it, it removes the mystery, and a lot sure. of times
0: the mystery is yeah. the most horrifying element. And I actually it. would argue that Leatherface has, through the subtlety of Gunnar Hansen, has more characterization oh, yeah. in the original than they ever does. Like, in when it. he's putting
1: his head in his hands,
0: mm-hmm.
1: like, basically, like, it's almost comedic mm-hmm. when you see it, because it's like, Leatherface is like... Where the fuck are these people coming from? Right. Like, yeah. Why? He, you almost feel, feel bad for him. Yeah. Right.
0: And he's confused, like he doesn't yeah. understand, like
1: why he has to keep killing yeah. these people. Like, and the way that they,
0: they, they mistreat like, Leatherface. Yeah. I mean, well, making him dress
1: like a woman at the end. Sure. Too. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Maybe if anything is about like misogyny, it's that and the sure. fact that Leatherface sure. is like subjugate when when they're using him as a servant, they make him dress like. Well, a woman. I saw
0: somebody it was in. I think in one of the um, <clears throat> one of the notes for a special DVD release mentioned that. Um, they see it as, um, that scene as a, uh, as a perverse, like, statement on the American family in that there's, it's basically, like, father in the proprietor, mm-hmm. um, wife in Leatherface and then, like, teenage son. It's almost like a, it's a, it's a joke on, like, sitcoms. Yeah. Almost. Well, with because his, Leatherface
1: is trying to, like, in a really crazy way, like, make peace between the two of them while yeah. they're arguing. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the hitchhiker character is you know, like, basically, like, sucks to you, Dad. Like, I'm going to do what I want. Sure.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, no, I thought it was a pretty, like, uh... Yeah, that's that, that, that that's an apt... Yeah. Almost like an American Gothic type thing, too, in the way that, like, the grandfather is the breadwinner, and mm-hmm. he's, like, this... Well, I mean, you think he's, like, a corpse, but he's, like, this stoic... I don't know. Again, we could talk about it for hours. I mean, I could literally talk sure. about Texas all yeah. for, like, three or four hours straight, probably, and not stop.
0: Yeah. Okay, um... <laughs> So we'll end it there Um, So everybody if um, you have any of your own lists that you uh, have any ideas for please feel free to email us at Two guys five movies at gmail.com. That's the number two and five two guys five movies at gmail.com You can also find us on Facebook um, at the same name Uh, next week. We will be doing our retrospective on the Phantasm franchise um and be looking at that and uh we've also decided we're going to take a little bit of time to talk about um and review the haunting of hill house netflix series um considering it's still going to be october and um it's a new horror series so we're going to take some time to talk about that two guys 10 episodes yeah Hmm. um (laughs) okay um so thank you for listening and um hope everybody has a good week yeah thanks have a good night